Okay, now go ahead. Are, are you are you sure you're ready? You're good. For, well, you're good with this. Three, two, one, go. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Screamcast Day of Quarantine. But hey, look, hey, listen, we're here watching Night of the Living Dead with you. This is Mike Delaney. I've sat out a couple episodes, but joining me now, forever and always, are the two people that are the, the rock solid people that are on Screamcast forever, and that is, of course, the great Ms. Stephanie Crawford. Hey yo. Hey <laughs> And uh, Bradley Fucklesuck Henderson. How are you, sir? Pretty good, Mike. Thanks for that wonderful intro. Yeah. No, well, I missed uh well, I missed the the Sov pod where I got to talk about your middle name, which is based on uh, Escape from Alcatraz, right? Correct, yes. Right. Uh, Frank Frank <laughs> Henderson. We're not watching right now. Or Frank Morris. We're gonna watch Frank Night Morris. of the Living Dead, George Romero's nineteen sixty-eight Americana classic. And uh, I've been told I'm going to get a countdown from Brad as when to hit play. And we should actually have that countdown for the listeners as well if they want to play at home. Uh, so, Brad, when you're ready. Yeah. All right. So we're watching the Criterion uh, Blu-ray, all of us, correct? Correct. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's public domain. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's out there, bro. All right. So um, on... Uh, when I say play, after I say one, that's when you hit play, okay? But you're going to say one, then you're going to say play, then we hit play. Three, uh-huh. two, sure. one, play. All right. Okay, so we see a country road, right? No, no, this is the, we're seeing the Criterion um, symbol. Okay, I'm, hit, I'm hitting pause. Let me know when you see an Image 10 production. <laughs> this, is, this is the Janus Films intro. All right. We're covering all the bases here. So like for that. sure it's Janus Films. It's not Yanis. It's this like, Bra- it's Brad, it's your, it's your lady. It's Janus. This film is from the music. So anyways, yeah, this is uh, George Lucas Family Trust helped restore this uh, definitive, I guess, right? This is like the last last one all right yeah. so like uh yeah I, I, I have the open road now great so there's the long long stretch so um image 10 production that is uh basically romero's uh other company that they started from uh latent image which they were doing um commercials yeah industrials yeah yeah, Duke's beer commercials and stuff like that. And then they decided to make a movie. So that's where uh, they created Image 10. Well, they I know he said while they were filming, it was almost like it was beer commercials with Night of the Living Dead as the side job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Night of the Living Dead was a side bitch. That's okay. All right. And if you notice, that's the ancient, notorious mistake when you see Night of the Living Dead logo right there they didn't uh, copyright it and that's what uh yeah. lost them all the money even though this is the one of the most successful independent horror films of all time but uh anyways so it, are unforgiving sir copyright laws they don't care yeah, if you notice no. uh uh striner keeps popping up by different last names uh, it's uh russ mm-hmm. striner's uh family um was uh I think my computer came unplugged. You guys just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, the one thing I do want to say is uh, 
when, when was the first time you guys saw that? Because look, we're not going to add anything new to the Night of the Living Dead, you know, mythology or lore. But when was the first time you guys saw it? Oh, okay. I'll go. Um, it wasn't one of the very first horror movies I saw. It was uh, when I could finally start being a little bit more open about watching horror movies when I was a kid. And I think it's just always on TV, either with the horror host or just playing on some kind of small channel at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. So I know I caught it randomly on TV and it scared the hell out of me. You know who else randomly catches us on TV stuff? Who? Every character in a horror movie ever. This is the show they're watching on TV. Yeah. No, I think it would be such (laughs) a great project if someone got all of those clips and tried to recreate the actual movie. Mm. That's brilliant. Like when the kids are watching it on TV and the babysitters and the other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like it. Um, Uh, I don't don't remember uh, mine. It was. I was very, very young. That's all I know. Honestly, I think I saw Halloween 2 first, and that's what made me want to watch it. There you go. I know I saw Leprechaun 3 before Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever atone for that. What about you, Mike? What was your first time? You know, I think the first time I definitely watched it all the way through. You guys might remember this. Late 90s, there was a, uh, a DVD label that did public domain shit. It's how I saw Metropolis, a bunch of Three Stooges. I, what were they called? Medesi? Massidy? Anyway, they would they would make these DVDs. They'd put them in these shitty yellow cases and just throw them in a bin at like Comp USA or something when DVD first came out. And I was oh, like, oh, I've seen Night it. of the Living Dead. And then I bought it for like $1.99 or whatever in 98. And then, uh, no, I, I had not. I thought I had seen it, but I'd seen like you guys said, like TV edits or whatever. But um, yeah, then I then I see it for sure. Um, so we're in the cemetery now. Probably one of the most iconic horror scenes of all time. If I'm not uh, speaking out of school here, no, no, and that's um, of course what I was going to say before my computer to start just decided to die. Um, was uh, you see the name Striner pop up a lot, and that's uh, Russ Striner um, that plays the brother, and uh, he was actually a, a producer on the picture, and um, you know his whole family uh, basically helped out making this movie, and the car that they drive is actually his mother's car. Um, they borrowed it for the film, which there's a little fun story uh, when. Barbara tries to run. This is also the last scene of the, uh, this is the last scene they filmed for the movie. Hmm. But, um, you know, what I find most interesting about Night of the Living Dead is that it really is a true story of a, like, rag tag team of misfits making a movie. You know, none of these people were you know uh you know other than theater of course none of them were in feature films you know everybody that's on screen had multiple like kind of a a coat a coat rack you know everybody did multiple jobs you know like like i said russ Reiner, he produced um he actually helped uh <laughs> sound mixing they didn't have enough money for uh so the story is is that russ Reiner here he challenged uh, the head mixer, 
the guy that owned the studio to a game of chess. And if, <laughs> uh, if they won, uh, the mixing people would do it for free. And if, uh, they won the mixing team, uh, they had to pay double. So, um, actually so Strainer's a bit of a chess, uh, prodigy. I guess so, but he, he won <laughs> and they got the sound, uh, sound mix for free. And, and he got to say one of the most iconic movie lines of all time. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now I don't, again, with the speaking out of school, this might be a better question for, for Steph to lead off, but is in my, in my opinion, there's like, well, maybe to this point, there's like three big uh, waves of, of horror filmmaking. But I would say that this is the second wave of like big American horror filmmaking. We have, uh, well, of course, you know, internationally, we have the silence in the, the 20s and 30s with like the German expression and, and whatnot. But then we have Universal, right? And the Universal Monsters in the 30s. And that kind of brought us through the 50s and whatnot. But this is the first, like... This is, in my opinion, like the big second wave of horror filmmaking when George Romero introduces the idea of this cannibalistic zombie, this slow-moving Americana beast. Where, where are you guys with where this sits with uh, uh, within the, the horror film legacy? I'll let Steph go first. Oh, okay. I think I pretty much agree with the second wave thing. Um, I think when you do get those touchstone films, you can't plan for it. And this mm-hmm. was perfect because they uh, were trying to get non-horror movies made. They couldn't get funding for that. And as many filmmakers know, um, it's a lot easier to kind of raise money and get interest in a horror film as your first. So that worked out for them. And like Brad was saying, they they were like living in the farmhouse when they were filming. They'd like bathe in the nearby creek. They're just these kids trying to finally make a feature movie. And they just happen to be insanely talented. And this came out at the exact right time in America. Um, it, it just had that kind of magic of uh, both talent and timing, which is so rare. And yeah, I think you're right. It just, it, it, it was just the right movie at the right time. And the rest is history. Because we've had smaller <laughs> movements before, like within horror filmmaking. Oh, yeah. You know, with like Val Luton, you know, from the studio or like Roger Carmen. But this was, in in my opinion, this is the one that really took... The, the independence and the horror and, and uh, like well, what you both are saying with uh, like this kind of idea of what we know, independent filmmaking that we might attribute to like eighties or Jim Jarmusch or something, but no, it was happening in the sixties. So uh, back real quick on track, they um, added this scene to where, they slam another car because that uh, that dent um, that happened the day before um, Russ Striner's mother was in a small fender bender and uh, the car got hit. So for continuity purposes, they made a uh, a wreck um, to kind of fit in. That was an action. An action. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's it's really it's just crazy. I mean, they they made things work that you know. Uh, by what they were given. And even if it's a mistake or something on purpose, they really, really did such a phenomenal job. And, and, and what I also just perfect is a beautiful shot. 
a DIY yeah. uh, of filmmaking right here. Like I said, just just so much effort and heart put into it and just a, a very much a family affair too. Um, you know, and it's not like a whole entire crew hiring actors. The actors were the crew, the crew were the actors type thing. It's just a, you know, just an amazing piece of cinema that revolutionized filmmaking, revolutionized horror, and also had a huge political statement at the same time. There's really just so much going on for this film. I mean, even though it, like I agree with Steph, it hit it at the right time. There's just way too much perfectness to this whole entire project. So another thing is how they got that shadow creepy light uh, throughout the film is uh, they just had, uh, I believe it was a, like a sheet and they would cut out random holes in the sheet and hold it in front of the lights. So that way it gave this really odd, weird vibe of shadow play for, uh, for the film, which I think really, really works. Um, Definitely. It just That's gives some us Pittsburgh ingenuity. Right there. <laughs> it just gives <laughs> really, really super duper creepy vibe. And also, we didn't talk about Bill Heinzman, that uh, the first zombie that we see, the the very or ghoul, I guess you should say, since they never say zombie in the film. But uh, no, they never they never say zombie, and they they sort of invent the idea, right, Brad, that zombies quote-unquote zombies are cannibalistic yeah yeah this is uh i mean other than kind of the voodoo zombies this is the very first cannibalistic zombie movie ever to to to, to my to my knowledge yeah Romero always thought of sorry go ahead no well i was just going to tie it back into val luton and i walked with a zombie but i'm much more interested (laughs) in you no, I was just going to say Romero, when he thought zombies, he thought voodoo. So he just thought of them as ghouls. And I know um, when zombies took off with the brain eating thing, it started getting connected to him, even though that was a return of the living dead thing. Um, I won't jump ahead, but they definitely don't go for the brains. <laughs> and then, um, you know, Bill Heinzman who was uh, a big part of this too, had a directing career after this and, you know, casted his own kids and made his own zombie movie called. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, I mean, only two people that really, really went out and did a lot, I would say would be Bill Heinzman and of course, George Romero, but uh, you can really tell it that, you know, this is just a, like I said, a friend and family affair. It's not like, you know, a bunch of people went on to do major things. They literally just had fun doing this and lived off that legacy and talked about it. But, uh, all right, here we go. More ghouls. <laughs> I tell you, it's this the, the walk to and the creation of this staggering drunk, you know, people. I, I, I this, you know, of course created, the slow moving zombie, which is, which is great. No, we take, you're right. We take it for granted now, but I feel like if you're sitting at the drive-in back then, it'd be like, that is so strange. Yeah. Some good uh, makeup. Right. Like the first time you see it, you're like, well, of course these motherfuckers can get out of the way. And then you're presented with all these limitations of why they cannot. Oh, we have our hero. Here comes our hero. 
a black man saving the day, which is amazing. It's just another thing that, uh, so originally this is a, a truck driver was, uh, you know, this is this, uh, kind of tough guy truck driver was, um, originally the, you know, that plays, uh, you know, Dwayne Jones play. It was Ben, right? I always forget the name for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and they met Dwayne Jones and they casted him, but they never actually wrote in he was black. Uh, so it just goes into something where it's just, you know, they just wanted him to portray. And he actually did a lot of improv. He was a, apparently he did a lot of theater and he was a, you know, classically trained actor. And um, he brought a lot to the table uh, for this, for this picture. And he, hated violence and he hated horror, but, uh, you know, George Romero definitely knew how to bring out the best in people and, you know, make it a, make it an iconic, very, very iconic role, which, you know, I say that, you know, and it's just, again, with, uh, the, I guess all the, just say the first four Romero zombie films, you really do have black actors in the lead, even in land of the dead, you have the black zombie, which is big daddy who kind of, you know, you root for the zombies in that one for the most part. Um, but yeah, uh, John and day of the dead and, uh, Ro- uh not Roger. What's Ken Foray's character in Dawn of the dead? No, yeah. no, I don't. Yeah, no, I can't, I don't can't remember it right now. But anyways, yeah, you know, it's just, it really is something having, you know, obviously a, a black man. It's, it's not even a, you know, even black exploitation or anything like that. It's literally just doing something that's, you know, basically unheard of. I mean, what, like, I guess the only thing we really had beforehand was guess who's coming to dinner, but that was even a racial standpoint in that in that film with Sidney Poitier and, you know with this we have Dwayne Jones yeah, but the idea behind that was to to make it a racial statement right I mean, yeah the, the there, there's no mention that he's black in this movie there's right. there's no there's absolutely zero content to anything that he's a black guy which is you know also this really especially this time 1968 not mentioning anything I think it's I think it's just a, a really cool and neat thing It's, you know, just another thing is like Dwayne Jones didn't even really do much after this either. Like I said, no one really went on to do much. It was just little bit parts here and there and cameos and mainly conventions. But I guess it wasn't about, you know, gaining fame and being in more movies. Well, that's pretty usual for regional filmmaking, isn't yeah. it? It's just True. this happened to become an enormous pop culture sensation but otherwise like other like who do we have like bruce campbell with sam raimi and like the middle of america making evil dead like yeah we don't we don't have many like stars that come out of the the regional filmmaking directors yes uh you know production crew yes but um i don't know It, it it pains me to say but actors are completely expendable not the good ones though. Dwayne Jones is amazing in this. Yeah. And also uh, there's John Russo, um, who's producer writer went on to do, obviously, I, I guess I shouldn't say that John Russo had a big career after this. What am I talking about? Oh yeah. Yeah. And he, author. And he did. 
still making movies. And he obviously, like I said, producer, writer, plays a zombie. He plays multiple zombies in the in the in this film. But but uh, we're still right because he wasn't primarily an actor. They just needed another zombie. <laughs> but um really, really good zombie too. So this is, uh, you know, a really great special effect too with this uh, tire iron right through oh, the yeah. through the head, and plenty of squibs in this too for you know being, you know, in the '60s, like you know, filmed in '67, released in '68. You know, it's not the very first film to have squibs, of course, but. Um, definitely caught eyes to a lot of filmmakers. So this might be a good point to, to ask a question. Why is this movie, the touchstone in your opinion for uh, quote unquote, like bad filmmaking? Like when you, when you watch a, a movie, like a, say a paranormal, something very like populous and, Oh, you have to relate to a bunch of like night of the living dead. That's a bad movie or that's a, poorly made like what makes this movie kind of a lightning rod for making fun of it because i have never watched this movie and thought it was funny funny well you know how people make fun of uh like night of the living dead like i'm sure we could oh oh i mean i i just think it's i just think it's one of those films very much i mean like any iconic horror film it's easy to parody because everybody has seen it you know, that's the reason why, uh, you know, The Exorcist has been parodied a million times and Scream and stuff like that. It's just an easy movie to make fun of. And you know, everybody knows it. That's the thing is everybody knows Night of the Living Dead. No matter what generation, what decade, little kids to old people always knows what Night of the Living Dead is. Same thing with like Halloween, you know. That little flip when he gets the the knife out of the box. Oh my gosh, he's good. Scared of fire. There we go. I guess uh, later on, I don't know what move, like what zombie movie it was. Is they um, the reason why they don't like fire? It's not. I don't think anything Ramiro did, but it was. Um, uh, they see the glimpse of hell. Is the reason why <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, like I, that. I always think about that every time I watch a zombie movie, and they're mainly, you know, Romero's films. Is uh, they they see into hell, and that's the reason why they don't like it. So, you know, and again, another thing is, you know, w- w- with the budget. I mean, they had. I think Romero said they had 10 investors from the to startup and they all gave in 600 bucks and that was their uh, starting budget for uh, for the film. And they filmed in black and white to make it a little bit cheaper. But it also gives, I mean, because people were making movies in color at this point, but it really gives this very creepy wonderful aesthetic i still haven't seen the colorized version i don't think i ever will it's terrifying well it's 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 all you know digitally done it's it's it looks like it's all 
really weird pastel bullshit. Uh-huh. It's just, it's really, really bad. It will, it's, it, I mean, it's not that hand aesthetic like George Malay's or whatever, but legend, I think, I, I will push back a little bit that I think legend films in their colorization, they do a good job, but you're right. It still has that pastel shit. Like when we used to see things in school, like from World War II that was colorized, and we're like, people don't look like that. But I, I think that legend films does do a good work. I will, I will give them that. I'll push back. It's just so perfect in black and white. And mm-hmm. I think a big part of what's com- so compelling about this movie still is it's beautifully shot. Like it, it's just constantly changing angles. Uh, there's new shots all the time, um, but it feels natural, but it's always changing on most low budget horror movies at the time. It just be a static camera, like, you know, like a play. And then they, uh, did it handheld on the outside so they couldn't have the sound but they could get those like angled handheld shots with the with the ghouls with the zombies and um i again it's something i think is very easy for people to take for granted but if you look this is such a kinetic movie Oh, for sure. And I mean, making a a movie in black and white in 68, that's like releasing a video game on a cartridge in the late 90s when, you know, audiences are like, oh, we want CD. And it's like, but it won't, it won't give you anything different, (laughs) you know. But um, no, I'm I'm with you 100%. Did they shoot, do either of you know if they shot this on like uh, ends, like uh, 16 millimeter ends from Leighton Image or how did they get the, the film stock for... Um, $6,000 price tag. I mean, it was everything from their studio, mm-hmm. you know, is uh, doing the commercials. And I mean, even, uh, you know, they were doing, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, this, not, not the actual show, but like, no, you know, they're fucking Fred Rogers. <laughs> they, uh, you know, when I, I know one of them in particular is Mr. Rogers goes for like a surgery, and they filmed the surgery portion of him in the doctor's office. You oh, know, yeah, it was, I remember uh, that. Late mm-hmm. So, like, um, no, I mean, they had everything that they needed as far as equipment and lights and cameras. So they lucked out in that part. It wasn't just, you know, hey, guys, sitting around drinking some beer, let's make a movie. They were just doing that at the studio and then was like, oh, let's make a movie. No, it's also... A good time to plug, if you do have the Criterion uh, Blu-ray, check out some of the the clips from Late Image, because Brad just said the Fred Rogers thing, but you can see parts of their commercials and other regional stuff they did, too. Yeah, it's pretty fun. So we already talked about how they bought this farmhouse, right? <laughs> that it was going to be torn down, and, yep. you know, it well, was... Uh, well, famously, George Romero tells the farmhouse owners, uh, they're like, well, we're gonna, just going to tear it down. And George Romero says, we can do that for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're going to wreck it anyway. So just... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, this movie was supposed to exist. Everything, except the copyright thing, <laughs> everything yeah. kind of landed perfectly. But maybe the copyright thing is perfect too, though, Steph, because it becomes kind of like a gift to the world, right? Yeah, like no, we can, it sucks that they got screwed over, but it definitely helped with the spread of the film for sure. True. Yeah, yeah, and originally um, it had really bad reviews, but it did very well, and it wasn't actually until so the film, I believe, is released in October of '68, um, and critics kind of shit on it. Uh, but it did well. 
but it wasn't actually until I think it was, I want to say the, like the next year, maybe it was 71. No, say the next year, say the next year. What is it? You just want me to say 69. Nice. Uh, I think it was maybe, I want to honestly say maybe it was a couple years later, like 71 or 72. They did um, another run of it and uh, it, it ran with something else. I think it was slaves, you know, cause back then, I mean, a lot of these, you know, movies, they wouldn't just play by themselves. They were double bills. So, you know, from, you know, the yeah, middle sixties until like the seventies, uh, even into like the late eighties, depending on what town you were in, um, or early, early eighties, I should say. So everything was double bills. You would go see two movies for the price of one. And uh, this was, I think, think paired up with Slaves. And it got re-released through, um, gosh, what is the name? Walter Reed is actually the distributor of it. Um, Walter Reed Distribution. They ran it again. And then that's when the critics picked up on it because the audiences already were going crazy for it. And that's when Roger Ebert, actually, I, I believe he rewrote his review and basically called himself out that he was wrong. Um, when he reviewed it again a few years later. And the cool thing about this too is that, you know, this comes at a time where we had radioactive monsters, creature features, gothic horror tales. We didn't have zombies. So it was completely new. I mean, we were used to these, you know, uh, giant bug movies in the 60s. And it was very normal for parents to drop off kids at the theater, you know, to go see a double bill to, you know, have a date night or whatever. But <laughs> little did they know that they're going to be watching fucking night of the living dead in the 60, 68 and scared the shit out of kids, you know, cause this is unlike anything around that time. I mean, this is, this is truly horrifying. Uh, you know, I, I, I equate night of the living dead to the kind of the same thing that Texas Chainsaw Massacre did where it's just, it feels real. There's this aesthetic in the film that it just pulls you in. And that's the scary part. Not the jump scares or anything like that. It's the realism. And, you know, the realism with these people too. There isn't some overall big plot of something unfolding. There is, of course, we hear it in the radio with the satellite and everything. Or is it a satellite? I always forget what the fuck caused this. Um, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't. That's the thing is, pretty vague. It, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It's it's literally just these people that get in a situation that have to survive and get out. So yeah. There is well, this big overall story. And the movie dares to be vulnerable, which is um, why I think it's so effective um because like you're saying the atomic monster movies when you see that you know these two they'd already be kind of pushed into a romance no matter how long they knew each other what was going on in the world and he would be some kind of overly confident scientist and she'd just be or military for him yeah or military or a military scientist that, that that's your perfect military science. yeah um and they would be white yeah, and here it's like, no, we're regular human beings. Right. We're we're landing where we land. Um and there's nudity in this too. So I'm sure that threw those little kids off. Um no, th- this one really just it, I don't know. 
it just really gets under your skin. It, it does. And I think there's a weird connection here. And I think you guys are helping me put this together because I didn't know how to like kind of navigate this, this train of thought. But um, so, so a zombie movie is completely new at this time. We're, we're essentially saying that George America Romero, that's what the A stands for, America. George America Romero invented this like notion of the zombie that we know today okay like zombie whatever voodoo val luton whatever but the idea that they're slow moving they eat people da, da, da. but I'm, I'm i'm also wondering if if this has anything to do like in the back of his mind with his he loves uh pal and pressburger right one of his favorite movies is uh tales of hoffman mm-hmm. and uh one of the most uh, colorful terrible. films of all time. Right. One of the most colorful <laughs> films of all time. Yeah. But, but also one of the most terrifying films, too, that's made around this time is Peeping Tom, right? And Peeping Tom is also, you know, similar in uh, execution and uh, theme to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which he was he was a gopher for uh, it, when he was a teenager, George America Romero. He was a gopher on uh, North by Northwest. And, and I'm thinking... Like, is this subconsciously him working with and against at the same time, uh, Pal Pressburger and Hitchcock? Like he, with this one movie, he makes as big a statement as their entire careers made. Well, he did maintain that he got Hitchcock a lot, um, but he actually thought he was doing more Orson Welles aping if he was doing anyone. Here comes the legendary slap. Boom. (laughs) I mean, I can see that through the photography for sure. Uh, and he he did regret how Barbara was portrayed in this film, which he <laughs> he he mostly rectified in the Tom Savini remake. Yeah, well, it, it, in the in the original script uh, for Night of Living uh, Dead, um, she lives. She was the survivor, and then they changed it during production, and that's where the Savini thing came in. Is that's the original idea? Was uh, Barbara was going to live? When we talk about Dwayne Jones being the hero of Night of the Living Dead, is it because he like survives till the end? You know, no spoilers on what happens next, but or is it because he unties her trench coat? You know, thirty minutes in because that looks uncomfortable, and he's like, "Look, I slapped you, but I'm going to at least make you a little comfy here." I think that's it's the sixties. I have to slap you. That's how me a man talks to a woman. I have to slap Dude. you. I'll still look out for you. When a lady's hister gets inflamed, you do slap her, though, for sure. Oh, we, we get hysterical, for sure. Well, your hister gets inflamed. You gotta stop it. So, it, you know, speaking of the ending, when they, um, when they were shopping this around, um, that was the one thing that they wanted them to change. And Romero stood his ground, and he said no. And they had a big, they had, uh, I think it was uh, AIP, was the big distributor that was very much wanting to do it. And they were very excited about that deal because AIP was such a big, big proponent of independent film and horror. And they did the Corman films and all this other stuff and very successful uh, runs on movies. And in the end, Romero turned them down because they wanted to change the ending. And he stood his ground, which is something I can respect to the fullest. Because honestly... Even though the ending does upset me, that's the fucking point, mm-hmm. you know. And yep. and that's what that's again that's what sets this movie aside from 
every other movie ever. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just this crazy shit like that happening. I love how they just like you know set things on fire. They have fire in the house. They're setting people on fire. So that's the thing is they hadn't had any stunt people. Uh, John Russo is actually one of the people, one of the zombies that set on fire at one point. I, I don't know if it's here when um, they throw the Molotov cocktails out, but um, they didn't have any special things underneath their clothes. Ramiro oh, just told them if it got too hot to roll around. Um, and that was their cue that they were burning up. But look at this fire in the house. He has no idea what he's doing. Yeah, you would he's have scared, to. He's scared to death right now. Like, I would be scared to death that I... Look at all that smoke. To me. That's crazy. That's some crazy shit right there. But, um, yeah, they they, uh, they set their friends on fire and then had them roll around and put them out with a blanket. Ah, youth. But uh, <laughs> such a... Such a fucking badass group of people, I tell you. That's why I love this movie so much. Is this love- one of the first movies where you board up windows and doors and shit? Is that I this? just I'm sorry, I love that there's just an ironing board wedged in there. It's just like, uh, why not? <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. So they they actually had to mark where all the boards go. And apparently in certain scenes you can see the written on the boards. Because they had to remove the boards to get out of the house and to move things around. So uh, they had to keep doing it. Um, and there's actually, I guess, certain boards, not all, all, all of them, but certain boards actually have things written on them to where they go. Uh, so you're saying for day-to-day continuity, they had to move this shit around to even Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just, it's just it's, that's really funny because they're literally living in this house as well as filming in the house. So they really had to take them down in order to make sure things were, uh, you know, people can get out. <laughs> and then, you know, like Steph was saying that they would, they would bathe in the, in this little river. And actually the production manager, uh, Vince something, I forget his name now. One. No, uh, he actually built a bridge uh, for, to make it easier for them to go over. So he built a bridge behind the house out of nothing. Uh, so it was easier for them to bring the buckets of water at night in order for them to, you know, bathe and do whatever. That's just, I mean, it's incredible. I remember hearing a story about Marilyn Eastman cause she did, uh, you know, she's, um, is it Hopper? Hopper? Hopper's wife? Was um, it Hooper? Gary? Gary Hooper? Is it what's his last? What's his name? Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Oh, in the movie? Cooper. Yeah, Cooper. Yeah. So uh, um, Marilyn Eastman, who plays the wife, uh, she uh, she actually did the uh, basically dressings of everybody, and I remember her. She was very nervous because she didn't know how many outfits to buy for each person because they didn't know how dirty they would get obviously. And, you know, they didn't have a, you know, they weren't going to clean them for continuity purposes. So, uh, apparently they did it with two sets, two sets of clothes for everybody.
the story is also Dwayne Jones uh, hated uh, hated guns. And um, apparently, whenever he would uh, fire the gun and the scene was over, they had uh, basically the crew run up and grab the gun from him because he would just drop it. He didn't like holding it. He didn't like doing anything with it. Do you know if he ever gave a specific reason why? uh, He just hated violence. He hated violence. He hated guns. I mean, every time I heard anybody speak about Dwayne Jones, it just, they always said that he was like the nicest man on the planet. Mm -hmm. Right. They met everybody on the planet. Yeah, I think George. Yeah, you're not allowed to say that until. Yeah. You- <laughs> yeah. No, but that's like that. Well, it's Twitter culture now. But um, it's called hyperbole. Okay, we all engage oh, okay. in it. <laughs> so I, I know that I, I was I mentioned also that they um you know with with the cost of the cost of the film I believe uh, you know they did the startup but after everything else was done the movie costs. Uh, I think it was like a hundred, like around like $120,000. Yeah. I've heard like 130. Yeah. That, that, yeah, sure. Which is, you know, a lot considering that time, but, um, it's on screen baby. Yeah. And then, you yeah. know, of course, Romero, uh, was the DP on this. He was the editor director. Yeah. He did it all. Writer. Yeah. He's operating that camera right now. Yeah. One one thing to say about George Romero, and now that Brad brought up editing, is he's one of the most amazing directors when it comes to edits in his film because he knew where he was going to cut. And you could, on old DVDs or old VHSs of George Romero movies, you could almost see the cigarette burns in the, the cuts, you know, to like where he was getting it's it's just brilliant like when you look at his uh screenplays and what ends up on the screen like amazing director editor so he's like the kind of director who already mostly edited the movie before he even gets in the room yeah after it's shot yeah Yeah, and i mean he's not shooting shit that he doesn't need you know like working with a director that like is also editing or also doing photography like uh was mentioned like they know what they need and they're not gonna go like outside of that they're not gonna question themselves they're like i'm not gonna fucking put these people through it and uh i mean the editing in this movie is amazing but uh I think, in my opinion, the best way to watch George Romero's editing and the way he shoots for edits, uh, out of the 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 four pri- primary movies, I would I would look at Land or uh, excuse me, Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead, I think, is like the touchstone of his. his and the work he was doing around that. Here we go. We have uh, it's a Harry, Harry Cooper. That was like Carl Carl Hartman. He uh, was a makeup artist, producer, actor. Again, did uh, did a lot. Apparently, this other I forget the kid's name, but but the kid he was a a, a professional singer in town in Pittsburgh. Um, he would do like a one man show. I guess. And they just, they saw him one night and asked if he want to be in a movie and 
He said, yeah, and that's what he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, why, why the Tom. fuck not? Tom? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's his name. I can't remember his real name, but again, like I said, I think he only just did this, and then he had his... Keith uh, Wayne, which Keith is a great Wayne. singer name. Yeah, Keith Wayne. It, it is a good singer name. But yeah, that's... Uh, you know, it's Carl. This guy, Carl Hartman, does not look like a makeup artist. No, he's probably. <laughs> oh, yeah, he does look like Rob Cordry a little bit. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, when you look at Jack Pierce, like, Jack Pierce to me doesn't look like a makeup artist, but he's arguably like the best makeup artist of all time. <laughs> Well, just like a surgeon, he wasn't really courting that. He took that so seriously. <laughs> but yeah, just with, with non-actors, uh, Carl Hardman plays a, an amazing asshole. He's so good. He's just so natural. Well, yes, and you can see, even though he is being the loudmouth asshole, like right there in his eyes, you can tell he's acting out of fear. And he's yeah. just lashing out. And the fact that he portrays that is, you know, again, when you see low budget horror movies from this era, you're not always getting that kind of nuance. Yeah. And again, but there's we, also, there's also the subtext too, that he's dealing with a black man mm-hmm. and he's not used to being like put, you know, below. <laughs> Yeah, like talking to him on the same right. level. Right. Yeah, and they don't have to explicitly say that, but especially right. back then yeah. the audience was like, oh my God. But, but being a little guy is pretty intimidating too, you know? So it's... Uh, it's like a powder keg. But, you know, being that... Um, it's like a what? Powder oh, keg. A, pow- a powder keg. It's like a barrel. Oh, powder keg. Okay. Keg. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Keith Wayne. Not to date us, but all these motherfuckers would have trouble like trimming their bangs during this quarantine. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty short lived. They're not even there 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could deal with the swarm of zombies if it was like, oh, uh, 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 let's go, let's get it done. Energy True, but they were at up. that, they were at that fucking house for like three weeks filming. Yeah, but we're talking about the reality of the movie. That's real sweat. <laughs> Yeah, three weeks in the house, and then they did a few days out and about. Um, but yeah, they wrapped. I think they only filmed for like thirty or forty days for this movie, which is a long time to you know with everything as cheap and how they did it. But um, this movie, sure. Made. Like I mean, while they're doing their industrial shit at Leighton Image by day, like that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, and you get to live in the house you're doing the filming at. No, they did it really smart. Did pants in the 60s make your butt look better? Yes. Like these butts look good, right? Very good butts. All right, good. All right. Keith Wayne is a guy that you would not want to fight. Just saying. Yeah, but based on his butt, I mean, like you might want to do another (laughs) F thing, but. But but we're gonna but. get the get the squibs here in a second. <clears throat> Blow out the guy's back. This is uh George Romero actually did that uh, hand. Yeah, the one that grabs the the stock of the nice. 
Yeah, the, the one. Yeah, the one he chops up. It's uh, made, I think it was like jelly and like clay. Looks terrible, but works. There's a squid. Uh oh, that doesn't count. Well, yeah, famously they'd have to come up with a bunch of shit for the screen to look like either human flesh or blood or da da da. And uh, famously they came up with ham and uh, fudge, right, for the flesh and the blood. And they said they they didn't need to do much makeup after that because people would just be squeamish around the smell of the chocolate and the the ham. <laughs> well, some of some of it's real intestines. They had yeah. uh, real intestines. They had a they had a butcher, um, a friend, and he would bring, you know, the leftovers and shit like that. Oh, there's the butt. There's the butt. Um, you know, we have um, them throwing it down. And, and Romero was, I remember him telling stories about how thankful and about how much he loved. He would never eat guts. That's Marilyn Eastman right there. She's uh, doubles as a zombie as well and eats that, uh, eats that bug get that bug um with the oatmeal makeup <laughs> yeah but um yeah eating real guts and he was just kind of blown away that the enthusiasm because i mean mainly all the zombies were friends family and you know locals um and also a lot of their customers of uh you know the uh, films and commercials they would make in town it was a lot of their customers came out to be zombies and um he was just i mean it really is like every everybody in this movie like is just you know a friend family or you know like a customer of romero's just a you know he definitely he has to be a likable guy there's no way you could pull this off you're an asshole that's for sure for sure and you know you said the thing about the butcher working on set and i was going to make a dumb joke about sam the butcher from brady bunch but it does remind me that the original title for this movie was uh, butcher baker nightmare maker <laughs> so uh, so the the original original title was night of anibus right and then they changed it to night of the flesh eaters and then it changed night of the living dead right i'm Do you so think glad flesh eaters sort of taken off <laughs> what is that It was Anubis, Flesh Eaters, then Living Dead. Anubis, and then there was the Flesh Eaters, and then, but there was a movie. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, um, yeah, and during all those title changes, of course, someone, someone fucked up the copyright. We'll blame it on George. What, why would you blame it on George? I want to blame it on George. I'm blaming it on George. <laughs> I'm blaming it on John. It actually, it'd probably be, uh, George's fault. I'm just saying. Well, no, for sure it's their lawyer's fault. Or, no, or it's some nerd with a briefcase. <laughs> um, yes, Steph? I'm trying to remember uh, her name. Is it Judy? Yes. Um, she always kind of reminded me of a really young Karen Black. A little bit. Yeah. And oh, it, yeah. Uh, she worked with Romero first in his first feature. Um, what was that? Uh, the, There's always vanilla. Yeah, always vanilla. There you go, Marilyn Eastman, who did uh, acting, makeup, and costumes. 
still alive today. Wow. Great hair. Yeah. Well, everybody's pretty much dead. I think Barbara's alive. You're bringing me down. I know. Marilyn Eastman and then uh, Kyra, the, the, the little girl that's laying there. But, um, and of course, this is a, a different set. The basement didn't exist in the farmhouse. Um, so they uh, cut a hole in the wall, and made a makeshift door for the, for the cellar. But um, this is, uh, I think, at their studio that they filmed this. This is the downstairs or something, if I remember correctly. But yeah, the, I mean, you could definitely build this space in a studio. So, I mean, yeah. Marilyn Eastman's good too. For a bunch of non-actors, these people are very good actors. That's the other thing I love about it. It's like, typically when you do that, you have your friends. There's always those two people, one or two people that just kind of bomb. Just you cast them because you're buddies. But I mean, they, these people were all professionals in different ways. And it's just a, again, a, a great thing. You got to meet Marilyn Eastman uh, last year. How was that? She was very, very sweet. Very, very, very put together and still sharp. Does she I still have it. a bunch of hair? Yeah. Yeah. She's got a bunch of hair. It's white, but she got a bunch of hair. But yeah, she's like 92 or something now or something crazy. So... Yeah, sadly, a lot of these people passed in the late 80s and late 90s. So John Russo still alive. He still writes books. No, he's on the uh, he's on the festival. Well, he does festival circuit stuff, but he also does like mostly convention stuff. Yeah, and I wanted to bring it up earlier, and I don't know when a good time to bring it up is. But when John Russo's on these convention circuits, you know, he hits the Bay Area, and I live in the Bay Area, so. Uh, you know, you'll go to these things sometimes. One thing he maintains, like he's always out here and he, he's always talking about the same fucking movie, this or uh, Return of the Living Dead, you know, and uh, he maintains to this day. Last time I heard him talk was maybe like 2017. He maintains to this day that, uh, you know, he and uh, George Romero had no intention of making this like a, a political or, or racial statement and you know i i think that 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 ties into what you were saying earlier brad and stuff about um Dwayne just being the best actor for the job and it's kind of like well what happens when you cast the right person in a good script like it changes the the ideas you know and then um also there's uh there's apparently a six like just a near six minute conversation in the basement right before they go upstairs, you'll notice a jump cut with um, with uh, Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman on the stairs. But apparently that conversation on the stairs goes for like six minutes longer. And um, they had to cut it studio's request. Uh, and Romero didn't really think it was a bad idea because it was very talky, which was <laughs> Ebert's uh, complaint um, the studio's like, you're giving a recipe for a Waldorf salad. Just keep going. <laughs> yeah. So you notice this weird jump cut in the film, but that's uh, the reason why is because the conversation goes on a lot longer. 
which I wouldn't mind because I, I I love the way Marilyn Eastman and uh, Carl Hardman, just the chemistry between them of a very authentic uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's what works. Well, that makes sense because Romero also maintained they weren't really trying to put in the political themes. The main theme was a complete breakdown of communication and how if everyone could communicate, they probably could have gotten at least out of this area fairly easily. But since none of them can communicate with each other, it doesn't end very well. Uh, So that's kind of interesting. (laughs) They're like, oh, it's a little too talky. Yeah. Yeah. The original working title of the film was Babel. Oh. <laughs> but fun, sometimes fun I think about that. It's an outrageous title. We're used to it now, but Night of the Living Dead. It really does right? build up the expectations. That's insane. Like, it sounds like a fake title. Like, it, like as, yeah, you're right. It's like as much as we're used to it, it sounds like something that was made up to, like, just get us going, you know? Yeah. And then you see it. It's like, oh, look at these brilliant actors. This is beautifully shot. This is genuinely creepy. Uh, I feel like I need to take this more seriously than when I first walked in here. What the hell's going on? That's that's the trick, though, Steph. You lower the bar. And that's what I've done (laughs) professionally my entire life. I'm like, if I make people think I'm an idiot asshole and then I do a thing that good, they'll love it. And I think Night of the Living Dead is maybe the, the movie version of that. So they, um, uh, one thing I was going to say is that, uh, so, uh, Lakeshore records, um, and I've talked about this on the podcast and stuff like that before. You have um, a podcast? Yeah. They, um, they had, uh, they rescored, uh, Night of the Living Dead and it is, I think it's incredible. They do What's a wait, Lake, Sh- Lake shore or ship to shore. Lake shore. Oh, okay. Was the original music that was uh, like library, basically, right? Right. Yeah. No, they went into the exactly. Yes. Mm. They they had access to the like public domain library of like music you could use, like the way that uh, uh, when I talked to uh, Larry Blameyer that did a skeleton a cadaver, like he's like, yeah, you could just buy access to the the library (laughs) that they have. He's like, oh, we have the same library. It's like George Romero. Butcher in the background, and he's a real newscaster. Who? This guy right here. Cronkite? (laughs) No. He actually, uh, Romero, since he was, you know, he did that for years, he actually uh, wrote his own uh, dialogue. Romero didn't write it. Oh, that's great. This is the part he was born to play. Yeah, yeah. And the guy, yeah, the guy walking around, uh, he's the guy that supplied all the meat. I think that would be the extent of acting I could probably pull off realistically in a movie. Just the background guy going, ah. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I, you know, with with you saying that Romero, uh, you said he regretted the fact what he, the kind of the character that uh, Judith o- o- O'Shea plays with Barbara. I really do love uh, the remake of Night of the Living Dead first, first of all, but it also really works cool. with Barbara being a badass. Mm-hmm. I do like that a lot more. 
So these are actual real towns and real hospitals listed. Um, so when this was being broadcast on television, uh, these places would, oh, no. these places would be blurred <laughs> out um, because the studio didn't want a War of the Worlds Orson Welles thing to happen. Ah, there's that influence again. <laughs> so yeah, so this would all be blurred out because when they were doing it, they would they wanted to make it real, so they picked places and you know Pennsylvania and stuff like that. But they these are real centers and real counties. Um, so yeah, when the, when the film played for the first few years on television, they would blur out, uh, the places just because they didn't want that to happen. Right. And, and then of it course comes to now the shot does. of the black guy and they're like, Oh, it can't be real. He's the star. Of thing. Damn Mike. <laughs> yeah. I went hard. Sorry. But now it's like George Romero hospital, John Carpenter <laughs> way. Yeah. Yeah. That's what <laughs> these do. Yeah. That's what these new filmmakers. So that's what this they would do. Oh, let's name all the characters after directors. Cronenberg we'll Elementary. We'll we'll Brad, so do you love that when they do that in horror movies? When no, they I name the characters, fucking George hate and it. David and, <laughs> and there's George Romero to the left with the microphone. George Romero's on the left. Apparently, they they uh, took a trip to the city, filmed this. I like all the newscast stuff. That's another thing that feels very authentic. And I think it really works in uh, Dawn of the Dead, too. I, I yeah, think well, um, it's very, very real. Right. And it helps uh, break up the claustrophobic feeling a little bit without completely ruining the mood. Um, it's a good way to give the audience a little bit of a window and to help actualize the next thing all the characters are going to do. And, and and with another thing, it also kind of portrays to today is that, you know, these people are in, and, and this is how it would be if we really did have something like this. We have these people in a farmhouse fighting for their life, but we have people in like Washington, DC, you know, just on the streets talking and interviewing just like in Dawn of the Dead, where we have people at a mall trying to fight for their life, but these other people, it hasn't hit there yet. And it's very much kind of like what we're going on with today with this whole quarantine and virus. You know, we, we, sure. we, saw, we saw people in, in pain and suffering, but we were just living life like nothing. And um, Well, I, you know, today I learned that there's still eight states in the United States that have no, like, shelter in place, you know? And I'm like the fuck is happening in North Dakota or whatever, where they don't think this is a real thing. Well, here's the thing is I don't think North Dakota is real. Cause I've never met anybody from it. I've, well, I've been to North Dakota and I love Fargo. So I have to disagree with you on both things. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> that Fargo clause will always get you. Sure. Always get you. Always get you. Marilyn Eastman is really beautiful by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great. It's kind of like the simmering woman who settled and it's ruined her com- her life. <laughs> she's just done. This is the last straw. She was she's like she, she I bet she was of, packed uh, to leave Harry and then all this happened. She's like, Jesus Christ. She should have been in every fucking like gothic vampire tale. Ooh, yeah. 
she, she does have kind of a Barbara Steele kind of yeah, that's vibe a, about what her. Gloria, um, what's her name from Dracula's Daughter kind of vibe going on too. Esteban. Um, that's so not Esteban, no. <laughs> that's not right. Foxburg Hall. And they sure let nerds do the news back then, didn't they? <laughs> Everybody has black rim glasses, that is for sure. They sure let nerds shoot this movie, too, because, like, everything is like, <laughs> oh, let's do a Dutch angle from here. <laughs> it's just like, where's the camera? Like, how did people think this was a real event happening, right? Like, what would be the, the Wellsian... <laughs> Yeah, so many dead angles is what I gotta say. I guess. Yeah, with with Romero not having the camera sit on something for very long is another thing I've always really liked him. It just shows the you know I think any good director knows when to change angles and stuff like that, and he does not um, let the camera sit. And the only shot, which I'll mention again when it happens, because I guess the first AD did it or someone else when Ben is down in the basement, the camera sits on him for like two minutes. And I remember on one of the commentaries for the many commentaries that have been done for this movie, because this movie has been released. We're doing one now a billion times on, you know, formats galore is that he would see, I remember him saying, as you can see, I didn't direct this scene because the camera sits too long on Ben. He's like, I don't know who did this. <laughs> Just joking. He knows who did it, but uh, I think it is uh, kind of funny, but yeah, his, um, his cuts, his editing is just so, so good. Uh, hey Mike, with your experience, uh, since a lot of these were stage actors, would that be kind of unusual for them to have to deal with like setups and marks and everything to that extent? Oh gosh, yeah, it's, I, I well, I would say so. Sure. Um, I mean, when you're when you're acting on the stage, you have marks like on the ground, like you have you have a very similar language when it comes to like blocking, but when it comes to this. Uh, like I, I think of like, uh, you know, Sergi Eisenstein or something like where you have to like morph your body to look a certain way. Cause the light needs to hit right here on your chin or right here on your eye <laughs> like that. Yeah. That's totally different. So yeah, that's a, that's a big adjustment because the, the lighting in theater is much more broad. It's like, it has to hit here. It'll get them from the side. Whereas in film, it's very specific. And uh, yeah. Well, I think one thing that Romero probably lucked out with is, um, and again, a lot of these scenes are one take. He didn't even have a safety half the time. Um, is that? Yeah, but that's uh, not from that's not from his practice or his directing. That that's literally from like a technical. No, no, no. What I'm what I'm saying is that you know most of the people that he had on set worked with him anyway, and they were crew members, so they knew what to do already. I mean, really, they only have just a couple, you know, a few, what, like these people that were just actors, not really crew people. So he had definitely had help. But um, yeah, I could I could definitely see that being a big adjustment for 
any, I mean, even a non-actor, really. I mean, just off the street doing, like, what's his name? What is his name again? Keith? Richards. Keith Richard? No, shut up. Keith David. Keith, Keith David. <laughs> you know. Gordon. Uh, Wayne. Gordon. It's Wayne. <laughs> Wayne Newton right here doing, uh, Keith Wayne you Newton. know, acting. The Jake Gyllenhaal guy? Yeah. And I, oh, yeah. I, I, I do. I do love all the small exposition with with everybody too. It's it's very. It's doesn't really go into much detail, but there's just enough to really care about most people. Yeah, like now, if either of them happen to explode, you know, who can say? Let's just say someone explodes. Like I actually care about them now. I can see them as real people. There's definitely a feeling throughout this film of we're all in this together. And I think that's because of the behind the scenes. That's very much how it was. Mm -hmm. And I think it really just kind of makes its way into the atmosphere of the film. Yeah, it definitely reflects off that a lot. Camaraderie. So you guys are saying this is a good movie. The movie I'm watching is good. That's what you're saying? Yeah. And honestly, it's one of these movies that I've seen so many times i never ever get tired of it it's got a perfect running time it's always eventful i always see something new that i didn't catch before whether it's a mistake or you know a a technical thing or you know just a shot there's always just something new and it just always feels fresh to me but again it's just it's one of those movies that you know there's very few movies like this that's the thing. And, there is, and also from an editing point of view to go back to like an earlier thing we we're talking about is, you know, a lot of times in the Hollywood movies, every single shot is like perfectly in focus or every single shot is like perfectly, you know, uh, synchronized with the next shot, you know, when we're talking about like a match edit or whatever, but this one, you'll see shots that are slightly out of focus. Like the, the lay person watching the movie might not know it's out of focus, but, Romero will use that shot based on the performance instead of like the photography. And it, it, it's kind of an amazing thing. And it's a testament to how good the acting in this movie actually is. Well, it, it, even the hammering, it's, the, the, it never lines up. It's always right. off. That's the other thing is, is, is sound, sound effects and stuff like that. It's, it's always off. There's uh, plenty of uh, shadows uh, from lights um, you That's know, from, from the setups and everything, uh, you know, uh, microphones dip in every once in a while, but yeah, you're right. It's just, it's just one of those, and that's also with Romero not doing safeties or another take. They just had that one, but if he felt it was good, it was good. And obviously it worked. So we got we have Karen Karen Black and Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> what? Oh my oh. god! Uh, no, it's a, it's a story for another time. <laughs> Let's keep going. There we go. Boom! This, now this is where one of the zombies catch on fire, right? Can I ask a dumb question that's slightly related? Yeah, sure. I literally don't know the answer. What is what's, John what's, the Molotov, what's the Molotov part of Molotov cocktail? 
Why, why is the first part called Molotov? Uh, maybe because it somehow connects to Russian stuff. Like maybe okay. Russians were doing it. They didn't have grenades, so it was makeshift uh, grenades. Wait, so is there like a country or a city called Molotov? No, it could have been or a like, drink or something. Why don't you look it up? You have Google. Google well, asking, yeah, you guys you, are you know smarter what? than me. Here, you you look it up. You look it up while uh, Steph and I talk. All right, keep talking. Go. Molotov. They always say... um, He he was... It was a person. Molotov was a person. Molotov's a person. Thank you, Stephanie. Bradley, listen. This is how you interact. Like, even how Dwayne Jones holds the gun, you can tell how uncomfortable he is. He doesn't even hold it like you would hold a rifle. Like yeah, but barely hangs on to it, which is great because again, you don't have this perfect action hero showing up and fixing everything. It's well, yeah. a capable guy; he's in good shape, he's smart. But you know, they've never dealt with anything like this before. You'd be a little bit like, uh, um, okay. yeah, true. You know, we don't know his history, but um, you know, that's another thing is that in these movies, you always have, you know people get guns together and then they know how to shoot for some reason and they can uh, yep. shoot perfectly. That's so even Dawn of the dead, you know, they, they can't do it. Flyboy never hits a shot. He almost uh, shoots everybody else, but the zombies. They even have that gun store in the mall. Yeah. And then, they, but they practice, they practice in Dawn of the dead to, to, to make uh, you know, for their accuracy. It's always made me so nervous. So uh, this is just my curiosity. Uh, Brad, how many times have you bought this movie on physical Oh, my media? God. <laughs> so my very first time buying Night Living Dead was a Blockbuster exclusive. So Blockbuster would release to films every once in a while. This, again, this whole scene with the fire makes me incredibly nervous. Yeah. Because um, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, it's going to blow up here. Oh, no, it's going to blow up here. No, it's going to blow up. They'll like, get away, oh, right? Oh, yeah. no. They'll get away. No, it blows up. Uh, but yeah, Blockbuster Night of the Living Dead. And then I bought uh, a DVD. I think it was a bootleg at the time. Um, and then... Uh, a bootleg of a punk domain. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. And then I bought it again on another DVD. And then there was a very good edition from, I believe it was Millennium put out a dvd i still have that i can't yeah, I cool. that millennium it. elite is amazing yeah that animator so series <laughs> yeah yeah and then it had night of living bread on it which is the uh-huh. parody of this and i bought that and then um i bought the colorized uh version on dvd when that came out and then the i the legend films one with the riff tracks commentary uh-huh yeah um my mom had a uh she bought the laser disc. Oh. Uh so I had we had a laser disc of this too. And that was like in the probably like how many 90, times you have to flip the living dead. <laughs> <laughs> um well, and, then, and then I bought a Japanese Blu-ray. Um, because that was the best transfer at the time. Um and then the Criterion. Well, so quite a few, about as many times as T two. Similar theme, Mike. 
Um, well, I got the, uh, you know, I'd seen it a bit on TV and then I bought the, uh, like I said, that two ninety nine like Medeci or Macy or whatever, whatever it is. And then, yeah, the, then for me, there was the millennium elite, you know, that same line that did, um, reanimator. They had that brilliant reanimator, uh, double disc that was like the standard dvd forever like that in brazil were like the best dvds ever made for me and then uh after the millennium one for night of the living dead there was from well like brad said there was the legend films one where mike nelson does the commentary and i did think that the the colorization was nice i didn't like it for the movie but i thought like technically the job they did was good (laughs) and um I don't know. You get Night of the Living Dead. Oh no, there was there was another one when I worked at Best Buy that um, the Weinstein's put out through. Uh, what what it must have been when Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead hashtag Snyder Cut came out. They must have released it again, and I think I had that. And then you know what they did release it on the double pack. They what? They did release it like on a double pack or something. Yeah, I mean, it's a public domain film. Like, why wasn't it a fucking special feature when Universal remade Dawn of the Dead in the first place? But, uh, uh, yeah, no, I think I think that might be it. Um, and then I've bought the, uh, uh, the uh, Tom Savini one a few times. Last time I bought the Tom Savini one was at Goodwill for a dollar because they thought it wouldn't play in North American players. But, uh, it was like as a fucking, haha, it's the Australian one, which is region free motherfuckers. So jokes on you. Here we go with the real intestines. When, when did you, uh, buy it stuff? Like when, how many times have you bought this? Not a lot actually. Um, cause it just always seemed available. And um, it because it is public domain, I never uh-huh. knew who to give my money to. So when uh-huh. the Millennium uh, came out, I was like, aha, this is a real edition. And uh-huh. I just held on to that until the Criterion. Beautiful. And I know we say this all the time is like uh, cinephiles, which sounds dirty, or film buffs, which sounds like, you know, equally sexually dirty. But uh, the Criterion one is amazing. Like that it's- is... That is it's, the gold standard. It's like seeing it for the first time over. Uh, it really is. Yeah. It really is. And we'll, we'll jump back a little bit to where one of my favorite scenes is when, uh, you know, Harry Cooper doesn't open the door for Ben. Mm. And then Ben comes in and gives him that look and then he helps him and then he punches him right after they board the door. I love that shit so much. Like, even though you helped me just now, fuck you, man. It's like, sure, zombies, but then you have to deal with this asshole. There's no rest. Yeah, there's no good guys, bad guys anymore. It literally is just people versus these ghouls. I do like how they show everyone being exhausted, too. It's a small thing, but I think it, it really helps. It's, the, yeah, it was like situation. with her hair now, it's like, you know, out of place. You know, it just, it really does. They're all worn down. Her wig is always a mess. Looks crooked half the time. Barbara's wig, I mean. Okay, calm down, Brad. 
What is a wig? Just to let you know. <laughs> That's a wig. A, a big, uh, 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 a big myth in the '90s was that Barbara was played by Marilyn Manson. Not true. We do know that now. Oh, but, she also had her ribs removed, right? And then she had her ribs on, removed. She was on so Wonder she years. could uh, play Paul. Touch her knees. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, on Wonder Years. He does look like Rob Corddry. I'm not wrong. No, you're not. <laughs> okay. Well, you guys kind of make me feel crazy sometimes. Does it help to blame us? No, I'm just saying how you make me feel. Look, my feelings are not the same as like reality. Like I'm just putting my feelings out there. Well, you're right. Um, so are we all fans of the remake? Yes. Oh, I, I love the yeah. Remake let's yeah, let's do that. Thank you, Steph. Remake is, in my opinion, amazing. Um, not just from the standpoint of the filmmakers, but also from the standpoint of why it exists in the first place. I think it's an amazing, like, legal reason why they did yeah, that. Get them that money, and then yeah, get them that money. Well, also you have... Uh, I don't know. Do we want to talk too much about George and no. John and the war between the living deads in the 80s? Or like, no, dude, I, I, don't know. I, I mean, I think a better route... Uh, yeah, not so much, but I think a better route to go is that, you know, the reason why the remake works to this is that we have, you know, uh, Tom Savini, who directed it, who started out very young working with Romero and, you know, Dawn of the Dead, A Day of the Dead. Um, it just made sense for him to do it. And it just, it kept it in the family. And that's one of the reason why he paid respect to using that original script uh, idea. Um, just, there, there's so many factors that go in for it to staying true. Um, it's perfect for, it's, it's the perfect remake that, that I consider is where it stays true to the original source material, but adds enough to be different. I, I don't know how to frame this question and I hope you guys can look through it and like find an answer or a solution, but like this is what ultimately, this is what ultimately this is was the outcome of the John George like return versus remake of night, like legal battle. Like did George really get anything after they tried to reclaim the, the copyright? Did John really get anything when they established? I don't think so. This is all improv, by the way, I mean, between uh, Chili, Chili Billy and uh, the sheriff. So the, yeah, they're dead. They're oh, all no, no. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, that's all ad-libbed there, and uh, most of it is. It's, they just let them kind of go themselves. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is with John and George in that situation. They obviously were, were, were friends, uh, you know, for a long time. And I think they butted heads a couple times, but John Russo uh, was always looking for that next paycheck. And I think that's his downfall as a uh, filmmaker, uh, an author, uh, whatever it else it may be he's doing, but he's always looking for that next paycheck. And he kind of does things and just goes out of his way to get it. So I think that's the problem. Now I have this shadow lighting, which is so beautiful. Yeah, I didn't like, is Dan O'Bannon the same way? Because I, I cut, 
Like, is John Russo and Dan O'Bannon teaming up like the ultimate Avengers thing is what I'm asking. No. Okay. Because <laughs> I feel that way about Dan O'Bannon sometimes. Yeah, the, the, the shadow lighting was just such a good idea. You know, you have that light with that sheet with the holes. It just, it gives this perfect eerie moonlight feeling and just, just adds so much to the movie. I don't want to ruin anything, but all shadows come from lighting. Correct. Here we go. Here's first picking up the weapons. They're evolving. Yeah. Man with their tools, right? Right. They're like, you gave us fire. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's no stopping us. Next thing they're going to have wheels coming in. To be clear, we're not making fun of the movie, which I do feel people have done for like the, you know, 60 years it's been around. Like, I feel people have made fun of this. And every time I watch it, I'm like, besides maybe her undoing her trench coat, like to, to you know, fart or like loosen up a little bit, like there's not much to make fun of. And and uh, I guess Brad, you're right with like it being ubiquitous and like just all around, like it's easier to make fun of it that way. Because now that I think about it, like Blair Witch is similar. Like there's no big star from Blair Witch aside from like you know, say uh, Joshua Leonard or whatever. But even he's not a big star. But he's had a career. But well, Heather Donahue was in a steak shake commercial after Blair. He was, and she was on a <laughs> she was on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And, I, and she I was about, in a Spike Lee joint. She was in a Spike Lee. I about lost my dad. <laughs> no, that's Blair Witch too. <laughs> I love, I love this fight during this terrible, terrible. Like they're about to lose everything, and they're still fucking fighting. That's toxic masculinity, right there. Yeah, and then boom, you're gonna get me killed, bitch. So I'm gonna kill you now. Yeah, that smoke rising up and that shadows on Ben's face is perfect. I do feel like a lot of people who do make fun of this film, it is of affection. But this is a film where if you really surrender yourself to it and pay attention, it's so effective. But if someone puts it on a party and you pass it, you'll probably you know, just see someone screaming or, you know, reacting pretty dramatically. And that, you know, it's easy to just kind of riff on that and I, I don't think it points to any failing the movie has at all it just you know it has like the classic horror tropes and the heightened emotion and some people get uncomfortable with that kind of thing and they just start making fun of it I do love this scene right before he dies he actually goes down to see his daughter it's actually it's pretty kind of sweet yeah yeah because even though he's an asshole, he, you know, cares about his family. Oh, Bill Hines comes back. <laughs> yeah, Barbara, actualize. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to work out for you, but at least you tried for a second. Yeah. That hero last minute. Oh, Kyra was eating that body. We have about 10 minutes left. In, in the film, not to uh, spoil things, but uh, let's uh, let's start getting some final thoughts out there because I know it might take a little while. We're about to come into the finale. 
we of course see uh, the the well, daughter. I, you're gonna you're gonna talk about like look at this. This is another this iconic, one of the <laughs> most iconic scenes. You know, Marilyn Eastman dies by her daughter, and you know, so she she stabs a pillow, and then we. This is the chocolate syrup. This is the chocolate oh, yeah. syrup they're spraying on her. Mm-hmm. But um, Bill Heinzman owns that. Well, he did. He's dead now. But yeah, that gardening tool. It's good yeah. to know. He 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 he. Well, it, it went off for an. I believe it went out for an auction at one point, and then he bought it. Um, he tracked the person down and. Uh, he bought it to put it in his, uh, you know, collection. Uh, imagine his kids, kids have it now. He died a few years. Oh, ago. the little trail thing. The is yeah. there dried Hershey's syrup on it when he bought it? Because I <laughs> no, I think I think people autographed it though. Ah, uh, what? Yeah, I think it's autographed by the crew. There's Johnny correctly. looking kind of new wave, a little bit. Gaunty. Yeah. Should play like a really Johnny. Gary, yeah, Gary, he looks like Gary Newman. Like the he has the, anymore, even though Morrissey's a dick. He sells the Giallo <laughs> driving gloves on. <laughs> it's pretty spooky. Well, um, I mean, final final thoughts. I mean, it's just uh, it's a you know, it's one of the best and most pure American films ever made. But even from a storytelling, like, this is insane that we get Johnny and the original zombie, like, showing up at this point, final act. Like, they didn't need to do that. Like, we would have bought it anyway, but it's it was, just like... It was this, added last last second. Yeah, this this complete little storytelling package that they have for the Sean Duraggers of the planet that are like, what happened to the first person that was there? Like... Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, I have to admit, I think the first time I saw this all the way through, I don't know if I noticed that was Johnny. Oh, okay. I think I was just so wrapped up in everything. <laughs> so I, I was actually scared the first time I saw this. But that's a good point, too. It's like, it, it doesn't matter if it's uh, Johnny or if it's not. Like, it's just a good little touch, you know? Oh, well, oh. At, when you realize it. John would love everyone. it. what I'm saying. I just want to talk about John. <laughs> it adds a lot. And, and the other thing I, I really, really love about this, uh, this, this ending is that the whole time the seller's a death trap, but they end up dying because they're not in the cellar. Ben survives because he goes to the cellar and then he ends up dying when he comes out of the cellar. I think that's so perfect because everybody's, it's like everybody's wrong and right. You know, it, it really is just shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the second title, but the distributor wasn't. Like... <laughs> yeah, just like Romero said, the breakdown of communication is what ultimately kills people. So it's always in the, the, the remake, they couldn't find the gas pump key. And he finds it when he's down there on the wall. Yeah, it doesn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, he just oh. fucking laughs. So it's good. like fuck. That's what he really wanted to do with the gun the entire time. So here we go. This is this. Uh, I believe this is just this shot where it just stays on Ben for a while. He's walking in shadows. Ramirez having a fucking panic attack. 
because it's unlike anything else in the movie. <laughs> it really, like, the camera moves real quick to try to catch him out of frame there. But, um, you know, it's, it still works. It's just a little nitpick from a ed- editing standpoint. What is this zombie doing? I've never even noticed that. See, I noticed something. She's banging on the floorboards with the fucking bedpost. Never, or whatever that from the uh, table. Never noticed that before. Yeah. It's daylight. Let's all let our guards down. I'm sure everything will be fine. Oh, Oh, it's not even, it's not titular. (laughs) So it's got to be good, right, Steph? No, a bunch of rednecks have guns. We need to get the (laughs) fuck out of here. This is worse than the goddamn zombies. (laughs) What? What's that brilliant uh, song in Dawn of the right. Dead? The uh, I'll be a man. The 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 macho like song when they're shooting people in the head in Dawn of the Dead. I'll be a man. I, I fuck. You talking What's about like good? like huh? uh, South Park? Now you're a man. A man. No, Dawn, <laughs> yo, Brad, don't make fun. You know what I'm talking about. Dawn of the Dead. There's like a country redneck song where they're shooting people, and it's like you'll be a man. Like yeah, that it's of, it's when they're um, it's like, like Johnny Guitar put it on his uh, compilation that he released on. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I have a CD with it. It's fine. There we go. This is all real police officers. Mm-hmm. Good old boys. Real uh, ambulance. Um, it's also the cast of uh, Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls just coming out to help. Yeah, pretty much. Well, it's, uh, it's, get uh, all the industrial people. Heavy, uh, uh, all the industrial people, they get together and they have a, a slack and they're like, come help me with a zombie movie. What's a zombie? Oh, so. Help. It's Come a on, good Eric. union. I'll tell his, you. His uh, his biggest his big influences: Carnival of Souls and also uh, I Am Legend, which is uh, what Romero <laughs> says that really, uh, <laughs> I Am Legend, which came out ten years later. Carnival of Souls, which came out ten years before. Sure, sure. No, no, no. I'm saying uh, the, oh, the Richard Matheson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, oh, I got you. I got the, the novella. Brad, I love you. I'm sorry. You told me on the text not to make fun, and here I am. One of I those. apologize. To, in in Steph and Brad's defense, they told me not to say anything stupid, and that's all I've been doing. Sorry. I forgot you. I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's because you don't talk to me anymore. Got him down. Shit. This shit is shot so beautifully, guys. It is. It's, it's amazing. It is really sad, though, I tell you, man. It's just like, it's so... I remember watching it for the first time and just thinking, this is horse shit. But, you know, it really does make it stand out and just works on so many levels. Yeah, the creeping dread is pretty intense because at this point, we know that we wouldn't be holding on the movie if the hero is going to be okay. Cause Hey, look, the good guys with the guns are here and he bored himself up, but it's just showing it playing out and that creeping dread, even though technically it's supposed to be, you know, 
That's a that's a brilliant point. Is this one of the first movies that kind of introduces that idea that like why is the narrative continue if the story has been told already or it like to its completion? It's almost cruel. I'm just going to say it right now. Yeah. Because in 1968 there's no reason to keep the movie going, right? No. Unless you're so. Telling something different. Like, I can't think of something 1968 or pre where you would have this coda that includes killing the hero. Mm, That's uh, Bill Pullman right there. The young (laughs) man with. So it's actually like, uh, like Robert De Niro meets Bill Pullman. No, for sure. It meets Michael Douglas meets Kirk. Yeah. And then here we go. No, Robert De Niro, you're totally right. Yeah. That's right. That's that's the deer hunter. That's the titular deer hunter. Oh, these photos are so effective. Yeah. Oh, with, yeah with the zooms, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um we didn't <laughs> that's Lee Harvey Oswald. We didn't say anything uh that you probably haven't already thought or uh you know. But goddamn, this is a fun movie to watch with your smart friends. So if you get nothing else out of this podcast, watch a good smart movie with your friends, two friends. You know, if you can get to, you know, a redhead and like a bald guy, that'd be great. That'd be ideal. Oh, Heinzman's uh, last name is spelled incorrectly. What? Maybe he thought he was playing the ketchup now. Heinzman, that's spelled incorrectly. <laughs> I thought they got chilly belly though. Yeah, at least uh he used to host a TV program, I think. Wait, well. are you talking about Bill Chili Billy Cardiel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh I usually at this time I think about AC McDonald. But uh no, I'm glad you guys are going for a uh, Chili Billy. Um loading him into the fire with that picture is just horrifying. Brad? Yes. Brad. There's Bill Heinzman dead. Do you want it? Brad? Brad. Brad. Brad? Oh, yeah. I'm just playing with you. I heard you though. Do you want to plug it? Brad? Brad. <laughs> do you want to plug your movie room you just made? My what? Steph, do you have anything to plug? Nope. Nope. Nothing to plug here. All right. Uh, so we recommend you guys all go to YouTube, watch Crossing Corona, learn how to spread the uh, the disease Corona COVID nineteen. The faster we spread it, the uh, the more we get it. Right. Yeah, it's like zombies. Sure, and that's why we well tying it into Night of the Living Dead. That's why we did it, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, I hope you enjoyed the commentary, and I hope you guys enjoyed doing it. I'd like to do it again with something else. (laughs) I miss you guys. Uh, So, no, but for real, uh, and let's talk for two minutes more. I know the movie's over, but uh, Steph, you... You've been busy. What have you been doing like the last couple of weeks? You, we haven't had Screamcast in like, gosh, I'd say a week or two. So what have you been doing since the last Screamcast? Uh, nothing special. I'm still working full time. So I'm just doing that and writing. And... You're in the new Fangoria. 
Yep. Uh, my friend Peaches Christ, uh, in your last article in Fangoria, uh, Peaches made sure to reach out to Phil and take pictures. Like, I thought that was amazing. Like, you're in Fangoria. Like, you're as cool to me as uh, Tony in, like, the late 90s, you know? Like, you're All that. Right. Yeah. All right, so go out, buy the new Fangoria. You can't buy it on the shelves. Go to your comic book store. Tell them to send it to you and spend $70 to get the subscription to your house. <laughs> Brad, what are you up to? You still working for, uh, what, gosh, what are they called? Wild Eyes. You, you're at Wild Eyes full-time now, right, Brad? I'm at Vinegar Syndrome full-time. What? Why don't you text a brother, Bravey? Bravey? Yeah, Bravey. Um, but yeah, I do that uh, full-time. I still am friends with Wild Eye, but I do not work there anymore. Um, but yeah, having a blast at uh, Vincent. Watching a Criterion movie as the first podcast uh, commentary. Cool. So Velocipastor <laughs> is available through Wild Eyes, uh, Brad's primary company. And then somebody asked me how I'm doing. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh, don't tell me you're leaving. The party's just begun.